Well, this morning as we open our Bibles to Mark chapter 5, we have just uh, heard a dramatic reading of perhaps one of the most explosive texts from the Gospel of Mark. And it is a story that has a way of reaching down and gripping you. Um, Stories have a way of doing that. Sometimes stories just cannot leave us alone. You know, my favorite movie of all time is the movie called The Mission, a 1986 British film about the experience of the Jesuit priests in 18th century South America. Robert De Niro plays the part of a mercenary slave trader named Rodrigo Mendoza, who makes a a living kidnapping the Guarani Indians and selling them to the plantations nearby. And his life takes a radical shift when he is, a, he is convicted and acquitted, I'm sorry, of the murder of his brother. And as serving penance to his, his guilt of murdering his brother, he is told by the Jesuit priest to take all of his weaponry and armor, put it in a sack, and pull it and carry it above the Iguasu Falls where the Guarani lived. And so there's this deeply symbolic moment in the movie that occurs at the top of Iguazu Falls when, in the company of the Guarani, a member of the tribe takes a long knife and approaches Mendoza, and it looks like he is going to slit his throat, but instead he reaches behind him and cuts the rope of all the sack of weaponry that he's been hauling, and then he pushes it over the edge of the cliff where it falls hundreds of feet below into the the river below. And it is an incredibly deeply symbolic act that symbolized this man's forgiveness and mercy given to him. Now delivered from his violent past and forgiven of the ones he had hunted, Mendoza breaks down into sobbing. Deep, convulsive sobbing, which eventually turns to laughter. And all the Guarani who are so impressed with this and and taken by it also begin to laugh along with him. And Mendoza spends the rest of his life around, among the Guarani trying to defend them from the Portuguese colonial armies and dying in so doing. The Mission is one of those movies that I have watched over and over and over again. And the conclusion that I have come to is that though I might be done with it, it is not done with me. Stories have a way of not being done with with us, you see, because stories carry deep meaning that run through the rivers, the underground rivers of our lives with themes that are so very relevant to us that we do not consciously live out or think through and yet subconsciously are impacting at a very deep level. William Bosch has written that the sign of a good story is that even when you are done with it, it is not done with you. I've tried to think about why it is that the movie The Mission is not done with me yet. I have an inkling that it has something to do with the themes of brokenness and deliverance and forgiveness, deep themes which, of course, mark our faith journey for every one of us if we reflect on them. They resonate deeply. And my prayer this morning is that as we begin to look at the story that we've heard read to us in Mark chapter 5, that though in, in a half an hour we will close our Bibles and we will think that we are done with it, that it will not be done with us. 
until God does something with it to shape who we are. That is my prayer. And so we turn in our Bibles to Mark chapter 5. This story also is about brokenness and deliverance. It is about a man who has been bound so tightly for so many years by a force inside of him that nothing on the outside could release him from it. It has much to teach us about the power of Jesus and his ability to free us from the invisible forces that, that hold us, that are within us, that bind us, debilitate us, shame us, the invisible chains that we carry around and no one else might even know about them. As you read this story, I challenge you, do not stumble over words like demon possession and evil spirits. For it is obvious that Satan, the enemy, knows a lot more about us than we know about him. For he is a master at binding us in all manner of invisible chains. Call them vices, call them addictions, call them bad habits, call them sins. I don't care what you call them. The question that you have to ask yourself is this. Was I created for something more? Was I created for something more than this? We're going to be talking today about those things that we are powerless over, the chains that bind us, the things that lead to our destruction, reduce our humanity to enslavement. Jesus Christ has come to set the captives free. It doesn't just mean you have to be a madman lunatic like Mark 5 suggests. You have chains that you're carrying around. Jesus wants to set you free. If this passage means anything, it means this for everyone who is ever captive to anything that the evil one would set against us. But before we look at this passage, the question that I have to seriously ask every one of us listening to it today is do we really want to be set free? Do we really want to be set free? Sigmund Freud, who I'm not suggesting this morning is an expert in any matters of spiritual life, but he observed with his patients that he was treated, that there was, quote, a force which defended itself with all of its means against healing and definitely wanted to cling to the illness and to the suffering. That is a non-Christian behaviorist that has decided this based on what he has viewed. There is something that defies being set free that exists and lives within every human being. We read about it in John chapter 5 when Jesus approached a man who had been a crippled for 38 years and Jesus asked the man, do you want to be made well? What a strange question. Jesus knew. And so today what we are confronted with is the reality that the enemy will blind us and defraud us and deceive us to thinking that this is as good as it gets. That the ball and chain that you are carrying around silently needs to be continued to be carried around for the rest of your life. He will convince you that that is your lot in life. And it's garbage, it's lies, it's deceit. Jesus sets people free from all manner of bondage and chains. 
I will come at the end of my message to ask you the question again. If you want to be set free, and I'm going to give you three steps to freedom that if you will apply into your life, it will get you on the road to overcoming power. Well, last week, Pastor Doug shared with us from chapter 4 of Mark how Jesus calmed a storm on the Sea of Galilee that threatened to destroy the disciples. And today, we are looking at a time when Jesus calmed a storm that raged within a man that threatened to destroy him. This man was as storm-tossed by evil spirits as the disciples had been storm-tossed by the wind and the waves. And most likely, Mark chapter 5 takes place the morning after the night of crossing the Sea of Galilee. In chapter 4, verse 35, tells us that it was evening when they set out. We know that Jesus slept for a time in the boat during the night. We also know that when he calmed the storms, it was so dead calm that they would have had to row the rest of the way across the Sea of Galilee. And so very likely, they arrive on the, the east side of the Sea of Galilee in the wee hours of the morning. Now this area, this shore, rises up steeply to the Golan Heights on the east side of the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Today, it is the disputed territory between Israel and Syria. Syria is in the pages much these days, isn't it? The news of Syria, this insane madman president, Bashar al-Assad, who blames every foreign country around him for the very, the very terror that exists within his own borders. But he is the one that's causing the strife. He is the one that is commanding armies to go against others and kill, slaughter innocent victims in residential areas. And yet he blames terrorists. This man is insane. I'm talking about the present-day Syria. It's a good context for us to think about right now because it's pretty much that way back in the time of Jesus. The same division existed between the west side of Israel and the east side which would belong to pagan countries in the west side of the Sea of Galilee. It's a good way for us to think about Mark chapter 5 because this area, the Gergesenes on the east side, is, is all, uh, all Gentile territory. The Decapolis means ten towns. And all the west side was Jewish territory. About a century before Christ, the Romans had invaded this east side of the Sea of Galilee with all of their pagan practices, including raising pigs. And they had set up their, their shop. Everything about this passage that we're looking at in Mark chapter 5 speaks to us uncleanness, okay? If you get anything from Mark 5 in reading it, you have to get the word unclean. It's throbbing with uncleanness, okay? Here is Jesus invading the unclean world of the enemy and declaring his lordship over the territory of the unclean Gentile lands. Not only did it have unclean oppressors, the Romans living there, not only did they raise unclean animals, but the first encounter that Jesus has is with an unclean spirit. The word evil is actually the word unclean in the NIV. And what's more, the man that is the carrier of the unclean spirits lives among the tombs, lives among the dead people, the rotting corpses, the uncleanness of them. And he, and he lived off of the food that was left there by loved ones, for their deceased loved ones. Friends, this, this passage throbs uncleanness. And here is a little group of Jewish men that have crossed the Sea of Galilee. To set foot on that land? We cannot read this passage without getting this. Now look at verse 2. 
In Mark chapter 5, we see that in verse 2, what does Jesus do? He gets out of the boat. And look at verse 18. What does it say that Jesus does? He gets back into the boat. And what happens between verse 2 and 18 is all about the deliverance of this one man. But where are the disciples during this period of verses 2 to verse 18? What does this passage tell us about the disciples, whether in Mark's account or Matthew's account or Luke's account? Where are the disciples, friends? I want to suggest to you they're, they're doing nothing. I want to suggest to you, in fact, though the text does not say it, that they haven't even left the boat. They are sitting in the boat, absolutely in shock and afraid. These are Jewish men that do not want to get out of this boat. This is perhaps one of the first cross-cultural mission trips that Jesus went on with his disciples. Perhaps on the way as they were crossing, like we say when we're going overseas or northern Manitoba or downtown to Winnipeg with LBE, maybe we say these things, maybe they said the same thing. Well, if even one life is impacted because of what we do today, it's worth it all. Maybe one of the disciples said that on the way there. (laughs) And indeed, we see in the text, one man was very impacted. But the disciples were in no way ready for what impact this would have on them. We can imagine that after this man is healed and is begging Jesus to let him go with them, I picture the disciples in the boat begging Jesus to not let him go with them. (laughs) That's what I picture. They're in shock. They don't get it. They haven't entered into missions yet. They don't get the heart of Jesus. They don't understand who He is. They had said just moments earlier, the night before, as they were crossing the sea, they said after the storm was calm and flat, Who is this? That even the wind and the waves obey Him. And now they're saying, Who is this? That even demonic spirits and madmen obey Him. Who is this? They are still getting to know Jesus at a deeper level. What a disturbing sight it is in Mark 5 as we open up our Bibles. Jesus steps out of the boat and is immediately accosted by a raving lunatic. Luke tells us that the man was naked and chained several times under guard, but no guard could keep him. Evil spirits would break the chains and drive the guards away. He would be going into solitary confinement among the graves. Matthew's account tells us there were two men, not one, and evidently one was more vocal and more violent to get the attention of the other gospel writers. Verses 7 to 10 are perhaps the most complicated verses of the entire passage because, you see, we do not know when the man is speaking and when the demons are speaking using the man's voice. We don't know that. Jesus knew that, but we don't know that. That's what makes verses 7 to 10 complicated. It happened to me once many years ago. I was in Ontario, and it was the summertime, and I got a call from a young woman that I had befriended at school at college, and she phoned and she said, would you pray for me tomorrow and fast because my elders are praying over me and there's been demonic oppression in my past. And so I said, yes, I I will definitely pray and fast tomorrow for you. And as I was speaking on the phone, a male voice, guttural and deep, began to speak to me and said to me, you cannot have her. 
This is my experience of demonic. And it was unnerving at the time. It was unsettling. I wondered, what is going on? I was young in my faith. I've come to see since then that the devil is an incredible liar. He will use intimidation. He will use fear. He's got a big mouth and he boasts of great things, but his power is nothing compared to Jesus Christ. Nothing. 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 Jesus Christ sets people free. This man was, is perhaps the most extreme case of a legion of demons making a gymnasium out of this man's body and Jesus, with one word, sets them free. What can he do for you? And so verses 7 to 10 are confusing. Who's talking to who? But verse 8 makes it clear, doesn't it? Jesus has no problem distinguishing between the man and the unclean spirits. Jesus says clearly, come out of this man, you evil spirits. And according to verse 10, the response was, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. We can interpret this to mean that the evil spirits are speaking, having recognized Jesus as the son of God. Or we could interpret it to mean that the man is speaking after being tipped off by the demons that this is the son of God. It makes sense either way to me. This man had faced torture from many sources. Why would Jesus be any different? Why would he not fall down before him and beg for mercy? The word used for chains here has the idea of taming a wild animal. This man would not be tamed though. Chains could not do it. The community could not do it. Guards could not do it. He was treated like a wild animal and he behaved like a a wild animal. Or could it be that the evil spirits are crying out to Jesus for them not to be tortured? And yet I find it very interesting in verse 6 that the word used for falling down is the same word that is used in the rest of Scripture when it's used for worshiping at the knee, falling down to the knee and worshiping God. And so the question I have is, 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 are we to believe that demons are forcing this man to get down and acknowledge the Son of God? Or is the man bowing down and asking for mercy on his own accord, asking for Jesus to, to deliver him? We're not told. Part of me wants to think that this man wanted to worship the Lord, but was oppressed by the, e- the evil spirits. But I also could see that the evil spirits are the ones that are talking, and they, in the presence of the omnipotent Son of God, had no recourse but to bow the knee and to acknowledge that Jesus is who he is. We're not told. It's a complicated text. G. Campbell Morgan, in his commentary, says about verse 9 that he believes Jesus is speaking to the man, not the demons, when he says, what is your name? I like to think that too. That in this passage we see the incredible tenderness of Jesus. What is your name? And then I believe that we see immediately the demons take over, overpower the man, and they respond to Jesus instead of the man having a chance to respond with his name. And they respond and they say, we are legion for we are many. Well, I'd like to move ahead to our outline that you'll see in, in your sermon outline in the green piece of paper in the bulletin. And there are four things that I'd like to comment on this morning. 
about this text. And the first one has to do with the demonic influence. Approximately one quarter of all of the healings that are recorded in the Gospel of Mark were actually deliverance, deliverances from demon activity. One quarter of all of the, influence, or the uh, healings recorded in the Gospel of Mark are deliverances from demon activity. And the word that is translated a few times in our passage as demon-possessed is actually only one word in the Greek text, and we should better translate it demonized because it has a very different connotation and theological meaning when you use the word possessed in English to translate the demonizomai of the Greek text. The scriptures teach us that even a Christian can be demonized, can come under the influence of a demon, but the scriptures never teach that the evil spirit can possess a Christian, a blood-bought child of God. You see, I am possessed by only one spirit, and he is the Holy Spirit, and I have been sealed by him until the day of my redemption because of the blood of Jesus, because of faith in Christ. There is no evil spirit that can come in and possess me, but he certainly can distract me, harass me, and deceive me. you got to know that. you got to get that. As I was preparing this sermon, I couldn't help but think of that. The, one of the songs that my mother, when she was part of the Hanover Gospel Trio... She would sing with her other two friends, Jesus, my Lord, will love me forever. From him no power of evil can sever. He gave his life to ransom my soul. Now I belong to him. Possession. Now I belong to Jesus. Jesus belongs to me, not for the years of time alone, but for eternity. That's possession, friends. You are possessed. You bet you are. If you are a Christian, you are possessed by God, the living Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You are possessed. But, but you know what? You can still be a playground for evil spirits. We have germs around us everywhere, don't we? We have germs in our body, they'd say. We have germs on microphones, on doorknobs, everywhere you have it. You have germs. Are you afraid of those germs? Do you live in fear every day? No, of course not, because you know that your body has resistance to germs. But can you be stupid about it? Yes, you can. So many times we take teams to Bolivia, and in Bolivia we'd say to the people, don't drink that water, drink the bottled water. Don't buy that food on the street, eat the food we give you. We always one in the group that has to try something different, right? (laughs) Sure enough, they got started on their running program a little early. (laughs) Friends, we don't have to fear evil spirits. But believe me, you better fear them if you're going to start playing in their playground. If you're going to start opening up your life to them. Satan's power is manifest more often as a wolf in sheep's clothing or as an angel of light than a raving madman. What he cannot do by force, he will try to do by fraud. He is a lion on the loose, but if he won't get you as a lion on the loose, he will get you as a fox on the prowl. He's described both ways in Scripture, so be wise. Don't be foolish. 
And the goal in both cases is to enslave, dehumanize, rob, kill, and destroy us. And he'll do it three ways. He'll do it by tempting, by deceiving, or by accusing. He'll do it three ways. Be wise. The second point of our sermon this morning is, secondly, the demonization of a man living under the influence. I found it very interesting when I was reading uh, Surprised by Joy, C.S. Lewis's book, describing his conversion, he refers to Mark chapter 5, the passage we're looking at. And listen to how he describes his life before he met Jesus. This is C.S. Lewis describing his pre-Christian days. He says, I was a zoo of lusts. I was a bedlam of ambitions. I was a nursery of fears. And I was a harem of hatreds. My name, he says, was Legion. Don't you ever think that we are any different. Our human heart is an idol-making factory. We have the capacity and the propensity to live in idolatry and in enslavement and in addiction and in habits that will demoralize, dehumanize, and drag us down because the enemy is prowling around. When we witness someone under the domination of an addiction, we can be sure that at the root of it there is an evil spirit who has gotten a foothold in someone's life. Though they may be able to hold it together in all other areas of their life, that's where Satan has attacked them. Humans have this propensity to addictive behavior. Some addictions can be kept under wraps, others cannot. Some are socially acceptable, others are not. Some can be tamed, while others are like wild horses out of the pen. You decide which it is that's seeking to dominate and enslave you. It will be different than the ones that I wrestle with. When we walk in the light, though, when we walk in the light as Jesus is in the light, the thing that's amazing is that we are aware of the cravings of sinful man. We are aware of our desires and habits that seek to control us. We recognize that we were made for something more, and Jesus wants to set us free, and we run to him because we know we're no match. We're no match for the evil spirits and the demons and the habits and the, the flesh that wars against us. This man is a picture of what Jesus wants to do for each one of us. Jesus finds us as we are in the, in the world. We're under the control of the evil one, 1 John 5, 19 says. And he wants us to ask the question of him. He wants us to come to him and say, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? What do you want with me? That's what he wants us to come And when we ask that question seriously and from the heart, he takes us at our word and he begins to deliver us from all evil, even as the Lord's prayer prays. And in this man's case, his deliverance was instantaneous, was quick. For many people, because of whatever reason, our deliverance takes an entire lifetime. And the thing that I find amazing about this text is that once we have been set free, where does he send us first? Where does Jesus send this man first after he has been delivered? Someone tell me out loud. Home. He sends him home. He sends him home, friends. He didn't, he didn't 
charge him up and take him on the road because, whoa, here's a good example. Here's one that can give his testimony everywhere we go. From the pagan side, nonetheless, of the sea. No, he says, go home and tell your family what the mercy of God has done for you. Friends, you never need to guess where your first call is. Fathers, husbands, mothers, wives, children, whatever age, you never need to guess where your first call is. Your first call is always go home. Let the transformation of Christ in your life, let the deliverance of Jesus in you, seen at home first. It's so important. It's so important we get that. That's job one. The third point in our message this morning is the demonized community living in a community living under the influence. Friends, we miss a very important part of this passage if we confine our understanding of the demonic only to the man in the story. If we mystify demons and only fight demons in the air, we miss the ones that are all around us in the institutions and the economics of our society. It should make us scratch our heads. Why did these townspeople in the story not give Jesus the key to the city? I don't get that. Do you get that? Why did they not give Jesus the key to the city? He had just delivered this town from a public nuisance. He had just taken a raving lunatic, a criminally insane person, threatening everybody that passed by, and he had turned this man into a contributing citizen, and they drive Jesus away? Do you get this? Why did they fear Jesus? Is it because they were not familiar, familiar with his power? Is it because there were other interests that were more important? They were not used to the incredible power of love that sets someone free. You see, perhaps they were more familiar with the power that beats and chains and dehumanizes problem people, the kind that meets evil with brute strength, the kind that cracks down on madmen and protects community interest with iron bars. This is the kind of community that is afraid of meeting violence with prayer, especially if the police chief is calling for it. Communities are afraid of that kind of power. They would rather go on locking people up in the attempt to sterilize our communities and keep the bad people away rather than get our hands dirty. I'm aware that there were 2,000 pigs that died that day. It's amazing how many people are worried about the pigs and not seeing the man that was delivered of a lifelong torture. You see, the ugly part of this story is not just what takes place out among the tombs at the edge of town. It is what happened in the hearts of the normal, regular citizens who were deemed, who have deemed their lifestyle as more important than this man's life. Jesus set a man free from a legion of demons and in doing so had aroused a whole other legion of demons that lived in the pleasantries of residential life and schools and businesses and markets and meeting places and homes of the people in town. 
And a community that is in bondage to its own economic interests can never set free others who are in bondage to other influences. And so the people are afraid of Jesus for good reason. The passage shows us the untamed power of Satan in a man, how it terrified people. But oh, I'll tell you, it shows us even more so the terror that exists in people's eyes when they see the untamed power of Jesus Christ. Well, let's conclude our time with looking at the fourth point. And this is where I'm going to come back to asking the question that I began with earlier in the message is, whatever it is that you might be struggling with privately or not, do you really want to be free? And as the worship team comes, we're going to conclude our service with a song in a moment. But I think that the most important point of application that I want to drill down in just before we conclude, and I have three points under, under the fourth item of our message. I'd like to suggest that there are three very simple biblical steps to freedom. And this is, these apply to every one of us. And my, my demons are not the same as yours. The chains that are invisible in my life may not be the ones that are in your life. But the first point of step to freedom is, number one, come into the light of God's incredible mercy. See, when you encounter Jesus like this man encountered Jesus, you will not find a God of judgment shaking his finger at you. You will find a merciful and tender Savior, Jesus. And he can set you free from the chains that are locking you up whether it's unforgiveness or pornography or bitterness or ugly other sins, whatever it might be. And so first point is come into the light of Christ's mercy. Identify the destructive impulses that you have. What are you living under the influence of? It was said of Alexander the Great that he was the conqueror of the world and yet he was led captive by his own vice. What vice do you wrestle with? God said to Cain in Genesis chapter 4, sin is crouching at your door, desires to have you. You must master it. You cannot master it alone. Come into the light. So come into the light by acknowledging, calling it what it is, whether it's sin or just bondage, and tell the Lord what, about what it is for you. Secondly, come into the light of Christ's community. It does not help us to admit to God that we're struggling if we're not going to come out of the secrecy of our closets and tell somebody else, another human being. The flesh has so many ways of dancing around sin and pride will resist you telling anyone the things you struggle with. But James 5 says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed for the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. So go to a person. Go to a person that you trust is a person that prays, okay? Go to a person that you trust and that you know prays seriously and get into a relationship with them and stand together to believe God for victory in the battles that you face in this area. And then thirdly, come into the light of Christ's will for your life. God always works on the displacement principle. He never is going to take something away from you if he isn't going to put something back in its place which is full of joy and good fruit. And so whatever it is, recognize and pray the prayer of Mark 5 verse 7. 
Say to the Lord, what do you want with me, Jesus? He'll, he'll fill in the blanks for you. He will make it clear that out of your bondage, He will give you something. Instead of lust, He will give you purity. Instead of bitterness, He will give you forgiveness. Instead of self-pity, He will give you a life serving other people. Go to His throne of mercy and ask what He wants from you. Friends, do you not find it strange that Jesus Christ went more willingly to the cross then you and I go to the throne of grace? Does that not make no sense to us? That Jesus Christ went more willingly to the cross to purchase our redemption and deliverance than we are quick to go to His throne of grace to receive it. Don't be that way today. Let's pray. In the song, would you lead us, Kevin? Would you stand with us?
struggles that we have and the sin that we face. Not because we have the power to forgive each other's sins, but because it's in that process that we humble ourselves in a deeper way. And God leads us towards repentance that is honest. There's something powerful, powerful in sharing that love with others. And, and if God to use that friendship to bring things into your life that need to go before the Lord. I really encourage you to, to share in that way. And if you don't, I encourage you to seek out a friendship like that or come and speak to any of us who are the pastors here. We would um, consider it a privilege to, to, to walk with you and, and to, to speak about it. Lord, I pray that 